Well, good morning, Hallows Church. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here with the Hallows. It's my honor this morning to be able to open our Bibles together and explore this passage from Ephesians chapter 4 that we just heard read a moment ago uh, by our friend Rob. So let's, let's do that now. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Now, several years ago in, in Richmond Hill, Georgia, the employees of a Burger King in that city, they found a man who was unconscious next to a, a nearby dumpster behind that restaurant. But this man was not only unconscious, this man, it turns out, was, was naked, he was sunburnt, and he had insect bites all over his body. And his skull had three very substantial depressions in it that were later determined to be caused by some sort of blunt force trauma. Now, the employees of this Burger King, they called 911, of course, and, and the guy was taken to the hospital. But this guy, he was missing all of his possessions. He was missing his identification. Another thing he was missing was his memory. This guy had amnesia and was unable to remember his own name, much less how he came to be found by a dumpster behind a Burger King. Now, for some time, the amnesia, it, it persisted in this man, but... But what happened is that the authorities, they eventually were able to begin piecing together who this guy was and where he came from and also who he knew. And what's interesting is, that, is the way that everyone involved in this situation was able to help this guy slowly but surely begin to recover his memory by connecting him to the people who knew him best. And in time, this guy was able to recover uh, his sense of self, he was able to really get his life back on track through all of this. But you see, without the, the people who knew this man, this man had no other access to his own story. But once he was reconnected with the community to which he belonged, that was the catalyst for it all. He, and then he began to uh, be reminded of, of who he was. He began to regain his memory. He began to regain his identity. And he began to regain himself. But in every way, this man needed his community. He needed those who knew him and who loved him to remind him of who he was. And as we talk about Christian community today, this story reminds us, I think, of one of the reasons why being in fellowship and being in community together is so important to us and for us. Because quite often, we need each other in this same sort of way, don't we? We have a sort of amnesia, too, in a spiritual sense. And we need one another to remind one another of who we are and where we belong and to whom we belong. And Paul gets real practical for us here in this regard as he begins chapter 4 of this letter to the Ephesians. He has something important to say to us, in fact, about our need for Christian community. Now, for the first three chapters of this letter, Paul has been unpacking some pretty rich theology. He's been talking about the eternal uh, purposes of God that are being and will be uh, worked out in history. And he's been making clear that in and through the gospel, God is creating something entirely new, not just a new life for you as an individual, but a new life for you as part of something bigger than yourself and as part of a new society within the old. All of this ultimately leading uh, to a new creation altogether in which everything that is wrong with this world will fully and finally be put right. But as Paul begins chapter 4 here, he's really moving on from this new society to, to the new standards which are in many ways expected of it. He's turning from what God has done to what we are to do. And, 
and to who we are to be as part of this new people. He's turning from doctrine to, to duty and from theology to some very practical implications in everyday life for you and I. And we see him really turning that corner as he opens up in verse 1 of chapter 4 when he says, therefore, he says, therefore, because of these theological truths that I've been unpacking for you in the first three chapters and, and because of God's grace and generosity towards you in the gospel, he says, therefore, I urge you to consider the calling to which you've been called. You see, Paul could not be any more clear here and elsewhere that when you and I put our trust and our faith in the gospel, Jesus indeed creates a new calling for us. Jesus and every New Testament writer would say that as Christians, God is calling us into something new. He's calling us into something different. He's calling us into a new way of seeing ourselves and the world and really a new way of living altogether. We saw this quite clearly in last week's passage, right, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul said there that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. He says the old has passed away and the new has come. He would also say in that same passage that the reason that Jesus died and was raised was so that you and I might no longer live for ourselves, but that we would live for him. We're to put off the old self, Paul says, which belongs to our former manner of life, and we're to put on the new self. You see, in every way, the gospel calls us out of ourselves. It calls us to stop focusing on ourselves and serving and living for ourselves and to start instead focusing on him and to start serving and living for him. Now, ironically enough, the Bible says that's where you'll find yourself by, by losing yourself, by getting over yourself. The Bible says that's how you'll find out really who you are. And that's where you'll find what you've been searching and striving for in your life all along. The gospel, it creates a new calling for us. And in verse 1, we find Paul saying that, that as part of that new calling, you and I, we're to, we're to walk in a worthy way. Paul is urging the Ephesian Christians and every Christian sense to walk and to live and to love in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called and in a manner worthy of, of the one who has called us. Paul is saying we need to be thoughtful about how we carry ourselves, about how we treat one another, about how we represent and reflect Jesus to the world around us. Now, my wife Carol and I, we have three kids, and they're all out of the house at this point, pursuing their educations and, and starting their lives as young adults. We have a couple of them visiting us here from uh, college right now over spring break, and it's good to have them here with us. But when they were younger, when when they were young children, and, and really even to some extent today, their actions and their conduct communicated something to the world around them, right, about their family and about their father. Their words, their actions, their behaviors, whether positive or negative, said something to the world about what I was like. When they did well, it reflected on me. When they did poorly, it reflected on me. The things they said and did conveyed something to the world about me, whether what that something was was accurate or not. And so it is with us as God's children. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
You see, what we do with our time and what we do with our resources, what we do with our God-given gifts, the Bible says these things will communicate something to the world about what we believe and about, about who we believe. We show the world something about who Jesus is and, and what he's like by the ways that we live and by the ways that we love. And Paul is saying we need to be mindful of this at every turn. He says, consider your calling. Walk in a way that represents the family name well. But we're also called to walk not only in a worthy way, we're called as well to walk in a, in a willing way. And, and Paul is saying here we must never lose sight of that. There's a, there's a certain intentionality and a certain willingness to what Paul is saying here. Now, we do talk consistently here at the Hallows Church about grace, and that's going to continue. We talk a lot about how we're truly saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by our own works, so that no one may, may possibly boast. We talk all the time that it's not about what we do, but it's about what Jesus has done, and that we've been freed from the consequences of our sin as a result. But at the very same time, we also see uh, very clearly here and throughout the New Testament that there's, there's an active and dynamic part for us to play in this. And as we step into this calling, none of this just happens automatically. Paul says in verse 3, he says, be eager to get after these things. Be willing to step into your calling. Be eager to maintain unity and love and truth among yourselves. And this word eager, it's a strong word. It's a word of urgency. It means to spare no effort. And based on the way Paul uses this word, and grammatically speaking, as a, as a present participle, what's clear is that it's, what, what Paul is, not, is talking about is not a, not a one-time or occasional thing. Rather, Paul is saying that this is an ongoing, a continuous, diligent activity that you and I are to engage in together. Now, another thing we see here as we talk today about our core value of humble community is that, is that for Paul, the Christian walk is not an individualized thing. It does not take place in isolation. Rather, it happens as we willingly and intentionally step into community as part of God's family. The Bible, in fact, knows nothing of a strictly individualized walk with Jesus apart from uh, being in community with other believers. It's just not there. But the Bible, in fact, has a lot to say about a new community that Jesus intends to, to form and fashion in us and among us as a new people with a new purpose and with new perspective and new priorities. But the Bible says we truly need each other in this in order to discover and to know who we truly are and in order to, to grow and, and to flourish in this new life that the gospel creates for us. There's a 19th century pastor and author named D.L. Moody who was sharing a meal one time in his home with a prominent and successful Chicago businessman. This man had on occasion paid a visit to Moody's church, but uh, not very often. It was pretty infrequent that this guy would show up. And on this particular evening, this man brought up with Moody the topic of Christian community and his involvement therein, or his lack thereof, really. And perhaps, as this man was trying to justify his own uh, nominal level of commitment to this very thing, the man said this to Moody. He said, I believe I can be just as good a Christian outside the church as I can be inside it. Now, in response to this, Moody, he, he said nothing at all. He sat there for a moment, and then he stood up, and he moved slowly and deliberately toward the fireplace that at this point was uh, blazing away. 
he picked up some tongs that were sitting nearby and he carefully removed one of the coals from this fire and he placed that coal on the hearth. And then Moody sat down. And then the two men sat there together in silence and watched as this single ember slowly lost its heat. It lost its glow and it slowly died out altogether. And nothing more was said on that particular topic on that particular day other than the man simply nodding at Moody and saying, I see. This passage we're exploring today reminds us of the importance of this very thing, of being in community as a local church and staying, staying close to the fire and, and close to the source of our heat, which in many ways, as we'll talk about in a bit, is, is God's living and active word as we explore it and experience it and apply it to our lives together in community. And so Jesus, he creates a new calling for us, calling us to walk in a worthy way and a, and a willing way, calling us into community together. But we also see in this passage that as we do that, Jesus not only creates a new calling for us, but he also compels a new cohesion among us. Paul, in fact, paints a pretty fascinating picture here he starts by talking about our unity, right? He talks about all that we share together as Christians. It's pretty hard to miss, in fact. Listen to what he says in verses 4 and 5. He says, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all. Paul is stressing our oneness here, right, our unity. He's saying that each and every one of us is, is the very same in the sense that each and every one of us has been reconciled to God by, the, by the, the grace of the same gospel. Our shared experience of trusting in the gospel and becoming part of God's family, you see, it, it creates a unity among us that is bigger than any of the, the differences between us. It creates a unity that's deeper than any human divisions. It's deeper than any national ties or racial ties. It's deeper than any biological ties or political ties or cultural ties. And this unity that Paul is talking about in verses 4 to 6, it's, it's interesting. Paul says that, he says that at one level we're to maintain it, we're to keep it and to preserve it. But on another level, Paul says quite emphatically that this unity, it does not come from, from something we do. We don't discover it, we don't attain it, we don't create it or manufacture it. There's a sense in which it's given to us and it, it happens to us. It's a, it's a peculiar thing, really, when I think about this in the context of my own journey. I gotta tell you, when I became a Christian, uh, it happened pretty unexpectedly and it happened pretty abruptly. Uh, just over five years ago, actually this month, and I look forward to sharing more about that story over time with you, but, but when all this happened, I felt a very strange compulsion to be around other Christians, and, and before that, uh, not so much. And it didn't matter who they were or what they were about, I was drawn into community and felt this uh, oneness with Christians that simply was not my own doing. And if you ask my wife, if you ask my family, they did not know what was happening. They were scratching their heads and wondering how this was coming about. But God had created in my heart a unity with fellow believers that never was there before. And it had nothing at all to do with me trying or doing anything. 
Now, I think this is one of the reasons why the Puritan pastor John Owen would say that our unity as Christians and within the church, it's not the cause of love, rather it's the effect of love. Our unity proceeds from love before it ever brings forth love in us and among us, which it can and does do. And so there's a very interesting sense in which we don't form and fashion this type of unity based on our efforts as much as this type of unity really originating outside of ourselves forms and fashions us as we allow it to do so. And so Paul has been hitting pretty hard here in verses four and five, emphasizing this unity that we have together, right? One hope, one faith, one spirit, one Lord. But then in verse seven, right after using the word one seven times in just two verses, he suddenly turns and he says, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ, uh, Christ's gift. And so he was talking about one, and now he's talking about many. He's saying, yes, we're one, we're united, but he's also saying to each is given something unique. He was talking about unity, and now he's talking about diversity. And what's going to become clear here as we continue unpacking this passage is that uh, we, we have not only unity, but we have diversity in the midst of that unity. And furthermore, the one depends on the other. In other words, our unity depends on our diversity. We see this clearly in the metaphor used by Paul in verse 16 and elsewhere in his writings. Paul says the church is like a body, a living body with many diverse but interrelated and interdependent parts. And he says that the church, just like the human body, can only possibly exist and function and flourish when each of its different parts are working together as they were intended. One body with many parts knitted together, working together to accomplish things that the individual parts by themselves could not do. In fact, every part of any body has something that it does that only it can do. And so for Paul, becoming a Christian and stepping into Christian community, it's not like signing up for a, for a class to hear some good lectures that might help you out in your life. Instead, he says, you become part of a team. You become part of this body that he's uh, talking about with a unique role to play for the greater good of the whole. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see Paul using the same metaphor, this body metaphor, but in a much uh, fuller fashion, I would say. It was the passage you read earlier on, on the uh, screen during our open, opening reflections. Let me read some of that to you again. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But get this, verse 18, but as it is, God arranged, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet, yet one body. So our unity as a body, it flows from and finds its uh, foundation in God himself, right? One body, one spirit, one father, one Lord. But we see the very same with our diversity. We see that our diversity is, is distributed and dispensed by God as gifts of his grace. 
as he chooses and arranges the various parts and members of the body. And so the unity of the church, it depends upon our diversity, but what we also see is that the diversity across the church in every way enriches our unity. When Paul says in verse 4 that the grace, that grace was given to each of us in the body according to the measure of Christ's gift, he's talking about the spiritual gifts there. He's talking about spiritual gifts that are distributed and dispensed by Jesus across the body for the greater good of the body as a whole. In the New Testament, it tells us a fair amount about these spiritual gifts, but uh, we don't necessarily have time to get into the details about those this morning. But these diverse gifts distributed to the church by God, they include things like, like the gift of encouragement, the gift of hospitality, the gift of mercy and teaching and service, the gift of discernment, gift of faith, the gift of administration, the gift of wisdom, the gift of healing, to name a few. These are gifts from God to be used for God in the building up of the church, in the body, in truth, and in love. And this diversity in every way enriches and enhances our unity. You see, God has created and distributed our diversity, our, our uniqueness in such a way that we kind of fit together with the other uniquenesses that we interact with in the body of the local church. He weaves them all together. He distributes them. He, he calls people into action. He leads his people into how he wants them to function in the body. God never deposits all of his knowledge or gifts or skills in one person, but he distributes pieces of the puzzle to many. And we get to put those pieces together as we, as we kind of mix and mingle, as we interlock and discover our own gifts together and how they complement and enhance the body as a whole. God gifts each one of us uniquely as part of the body, and he calls us into uh, service for him in unique and necessary ways for the greater good. This is why Martin Lloyd-Jones would say that any church in which one or a few people are in charge of everything and are looked to to take care of everything is a complete denial of the New Testament doctrine of the church as the body of Christ, where he says every single member has responsibility and has a function and matters. That's the biblical picture of the local church. Our unity is maintained and enhanced as members of the body and all their, their diversity function together harmoniously for the well-being of the body as a whole. What the Bible does not in any way present is a pastor perched at the top of some pyramid or pinnacle over the people of the church. The Bible knows nothing of a pastor who is possessive over the ministries of the church but of one who helps and equips all of God's people to discover and to develop and to exercise their unique gifts that God has given to them. Friends, I have no interest or desire whatsoever in monopolizing the work of the ministry for myself. I don't want to monopolize ministries. I want to, I want to multiply ministries with you and through you. But we need to get after this together as a newly forming community of faith. And I do hope that everybody in the life of this church will at some point uh, early on come to say, uh, I have a part to play here. There are certain roles that I need to fill, that there are, there are certain people and situations that only I can help because of the unique gifts that God has given me and the, the place and time that he's placed me in this season of my life. 
Now, we've been gathering here for about six or seven weeks now in this space and in this way, but there were also several months of preparation leading up to this point as well. And friends, I was incredibly encouraged by how God orchestrated and assembled for this church just what was needed, just when it was needed, just who was needed to, to get the ball rolling and to, to keep it rolling. It's been a team effort in every possible way as people have been exercising their gifts that God has given to them. You met a few of these leaders earlier, and there were many others as well. We would not be here doing this without each and every part of the body doing uh, what they're doing. It's been a beautiful thing to, to witness and experience and be a part of. And I do believe God has and will continue to distribute his gifts of grace across this family of faith for our uh, functioning and for our flourishing. And we want to get after this together as we continue to move forward in faith. We want to help you find where, you're, where you fit, how God has gifted and called you to be a particular part of this body known as the Hallows Church. And so please connect with us in this sort of way and let's figure this out together. And so we have unity in the midst of diversity and we need both. We depend on both as the local church. They, they play off one another actually in some pretty interesting and dynamic ways. But how does all this happen? How, does this, how is this unity and this diversity held together? How are we to be built up in love and maturity as this one body with so many unique and different parts? Paul gives us an answer, I think, to that in verse 11. He says, Jesus gave to the church, he, Jesus gifted to the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And then it tells us why Jesus gave those to the church. It says, to equip the saints. That's you and I, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, each of those five gifts mentioned by Paul there in verse 11, the teachers, the shepherds, the evangelists, etc., they, they all relate in one way or another to the ministry of teaching and communicating the gospel and communicating the biblical worldview to God's people. We'll call this the ministry of the word, the ministry of God's word. This includes, first and foremost, the public teaching and preaching of the Bible, what we're, what we're doing right here, right now. But this can surely also include other forms of Bible study and teachings and communications in a small group setting, and even to some extent as individual Bible study and that sort of thing. And what Paul says in this passage is that it's the ministry of the word that is critical in every way to how Jesus builds us up, to how Jesus really creates and crafts a new community through us. Jesus creates and crafts a new community through us by the ministry of the word. Because for Paul, nothing is more necessary for building up of the building up of God's people and for creating uh, a new society within the, within the old than the faithful teaching and preaching of God's word. Paul says there's no substitute for it. This is something that you, you cannot and should not do without. And one of the reasons for this is because it's the ministry of the word that both uh, forms and, and informs our faith. That's exactly why we do this each and every week here together. Because we believe the ministry of the word and the consistent teaching and preaching of the gospel, that's what, that's what nourishes us. It's what stirs our hearts and it's what stimulates our minds. It's what energizes and empowers us in our knowledge and our trust of Jesus. We're supposed to have maturity in the faith, and that means we have to 
have to at some level master the, the body of teaching and the body of truth. And that takes place largely through the ministry of the word as we explore the gospel and its implications week in and week out. One commentator put it like this, and accurately so, I think. He said, uh, God does not move us beyond the gospel. He moves us more deeply into the gospel because all the power we need in order to change and mature comes, comes through the gospel. He says, the gospel does not simply ignite the Christian life. It is the fuel that keeps Christians going and growing every day. And so we don't ever move on or away from the gospel. We go deeper and deeper into the gospel because we believe that's what increasingly forms and fuels our faith and our community in dynamic ways as, as the Holy Spirit changes us in and through the living and active Word of God. Now, I want to say something briefly about this word translated as equip in verse 12 because it paints a, a fascinating picture for us, I think, that may not at first glance be apparent. Let me read verse 12 again. It says, it says, the reason that Jesus gives the church teachers and preachers, the reason he gives us the ministry of the word is to equip the saints, to equip you and I for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body in truth and in love. Now, the underlying Greek word that's translated as equip there in that verse, verse 12, it has a pretty broad and interesting range of possible meanings. In one sense, the word conveys something about diligent preparation, such as when one prepares an army for battle. And that's interesting, right? It suggests that the ministry of the word and the teaching and preaching ministry of the church is, is preparing and equipping God's people for conflict and for battle. And that is indeed true on multiple levels for us. But get this, the same word can also be used in a medical context as well, where it means to restore a bone that's been broken or to relocate a bone that's been dislocated and has been pulled out of joint. It means to restore something that's out of alignment. And so the point here, if we think about the word choice used by Paul, is that at some level we're all out of alignment what this suggests is that we're all dislocated in one way or another and we need to be reset and, and restored. Our hearts and our minds need to be regularly relocated and realigned to their proper center, which is Jesus. And Paul says this happens through the ministry of the word as, we, uh, as it continually forms and, and informs our faith. We see here quite clearly that the ministry of the word also guards our faith. Look at verse 14. Paul says one of the primary reasons we need teachers and pastors and shepherds, one of the reasons we have this ministry of the word is, is so, that, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning and craftiness. And so every human being who puts their trust in the gospel, every person who becomes a Christian starts out as a child. There's no way around it. It doesn't matter how young or old you are. It doesn't matter how uh, smart or successful you are. You start out in the faith as a child, and you go from there, and you grow from there. This reminds us that the Christian life is not an addendum or a continuation of any other part or aspect of life, and so it's a new start in that regard each and every time a person becomes a Christian. And so Paul is not saying here, don't, 
He's not saying never be children because he knows actually that's where things uh, begin. But he does say you should no longer be children if you've been walking with Jesus for some time. Unlike physical children who virtually grow up doing nothing about it, you cannot just be passive as a follower, follower of Jesus and expect to grow. We need to know and master the body of truth that's been uh, given to us. We need to know the truth because if we don't know what is true, then how are we to know what is false? And so the ministry of the word guards our faith by growing our faith in the knowledge of what is true in the knowledge of the gospel and the Son of God, it says in verse 13. And friends, I'd suggest to you that virtually every problem we face in our lives requires fundamentally that we believe one lie or another about God, about ourselves, or about the world. Whether we're talking about things like fear or guilt or shame, whether we're talking about things like pride or anger or unforgiveness, whether we're talking about feelings of inferiority or worthlessness, whether we're talking about false teachings and false doctrine, they're all grounded in lies and deception that can only be exposed as we get a, a firm handle on the truth of God's word and on the truth of God's promises. And so our survival and our flourishing demand that we stand squarely on the truth, that we see through the lies and that we expose those lies as what they are. And it's through the ministry of the word that our faith is guided and guarded in this sort of way by knowing and embracing the truth in our hearts and in our minds regularly and repeatedly. But we need to do this together, Paul says so that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave that we may face in our lives and by our culture. It's a matter of our survival together in a very real way. There's a certain type of fire ant that lives in the Brazilian rainforest that exhibits some very interesting survival behaviors. You see, if you take one or a few of these ants or even a dozen or more of these ants and you throw them in the water, they will each and every time flail and flounder and eventually sink and die. But get this, when you put enough of these ants in the water at once, something altogether different takes place. As long as there's enough of these ants in close enough proximity to one another, they sort of uh, band together to form this uh, interlocking structure that acts as uh, a life raft of sorts. And researchers have found that this behavior is what allows these ants to survive the, the flash floods that often happen in this region of South America. Tens of thousands of these ants can survive for months at a time, floating on the surface of some very rough waters by forming these interlocking structures between the adhesive pads on their legs. One researcher, one researcher said that at first it just looks like a tangle of bodies and limbs everywhere, but the longer you look at the picture, the more you're able to distinguish between different body parts and to see the very deliberate connections that were being made. And it was also found that these ants filled different roles in order to make all this happen. Individual ants could be found kind of rebalancing and reorganizing the structure as a whole whenever the structure had been compromised or destabilized by something going on around them. They could be found performing various functions, in fact, for the, for the greater good of the whole. And one of the researchers commented on how these deeply social insects 
acted together almost as if they were part of some sort of superorganism. He said the individuals acting together had an awareness of the environment around them that no individual alone could possibly have. And that's a pretty interesting picture, isn't it? Their survival when the storm came depended on them literally hanging on to one another and sticking together and working together as a team and doing together as a team that which would have otherwise been impossible for for just one or a few. Finally, the last thing we see here is that the ministry of the Word also mobilizes our faith. The ministry of the Word mobilizes our faith into tangible action and service by changing our perspective and our priorities, and more than anything else, by changing our hearts. And I think this happens as we increasingly see and understand what the gospel says about us and what it means for us, based, on, based not on what we've done or could ever do, but based on what uh, Jesus has done and, and promises to do. Friends, we're part of this narrative that is so much bigger than ourselves and God is inviting each one of us in to uh, be a part of it, to play a part in his story and it's an incredible thing. The ministry of the word reminds us regularly and repeatedly of how God loves us and pursues us and serves us in spite of us and as that melts our hearts and changes our lives and it, it should we ourselves begin to adopt the same other-oriented love and posture and service that Jesus himself had toward us. The ministry of the word encourage, or energizes and mobilizes our faith into action as we consider carefully the calling to which we've been called. And as we see this beautiful unity and diversity that Jesus is creating in us and among us, and as, as we allow him to craft us into a new community through the ministry of the word. And so let's get after this together in these sorts of ways as a humble community known as the Hallows Church. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how you use your word to form and fuel our faith, to, to guard our faith, to, to mobilize our faith. God, would you do those things now and in the coming weeks within the Hallows Church? Would you build your church in us and through us? Would you build us up in truth and love as a unified body made up of many distinct and beautiful parts? God, we ask, would you make us a humble and hopeful community for your glory and for our joy? In Jesus' name, amen.